Hello everyone, it is Adam back with another episode of Basic Snitches. Again, Tara is not joining us today because she has lost her voice, like with the last episode, so it's just me again. Sorry that you have to suffer through hearing only my voice through yet another episode, but Tara will be back next week as we close out this book. And this time I do not have a robotic voice. There's no Karen from Australia or basic robot bitch number one or anything like that because I am able to read Tara's summary even though bitch is sick, she can still write, so she sent me her summary. So yeah, just me, nobody else. Today we are discussing chapter 17, The Heir of Slytherin, where everything really comes to a head and we find out who has been truly in charge of all of these attacks on Muggleborns. Before we get into that, I am going to announce who Tara chose as winner and loser of chapter 16, The Chamber of Secrets. This should really come as no surprise. She has two winners and um, a very predictable loser. Uh, well, I guess both the winners and loser are really predictable. Uh, the winners are Harry and Ron. Clearly, those two are doing a lot of the sleuthing that I talked about in the last episode. They are getting to the bottom of things. They are showing great signs of courage and bravery, getting Lockhart to go down into this Chamber of Secrets. So, yes, clearly, they are the two winners of this chapter. And the loser is obviously Lockhart. I mean, who else is it going to be? He really shows his ass in that chapter and rightfully gets what has been coming to him this whole book. So our book-long bitch fest about Lockhart has really paid off in this chapter. All right, so here we go. Here's the summary that Tara wrote for me this time. Chapter 17, The Heir of Slytherin. Harry goes into the Chamber of Secrets and finds lots of snake pillars that creep him out. Honestly, this is why nobody likes this book. Fucking spiders and snakes every fucking where. As he walks through the chamber, he sees a big-ass statue of a monkey that is apparently supposed to be Salazar Slytherin. Then he sees Ginny and runs to her, begging her, helpfully, not to be dead. Out of nowhere, Tom Riddle appears. Instead of being concerned that some guy who was alive 50 years ago just appeared in front of him, Harry assumes he is there to help and urgently tells him about the basilisk and asks him to help get Ginny to safety. As Harry tries to lift Ginny to get her out of the chamber, Tom takes his wand and Harry finally starts to realize that maybe he should be concerned about his presence. In a lot of exposition, Tom explains to Harry that Ginny had opened the Chamber of Secrets and he has been controlling her basically all year through his diary to attack Muggleborns. When Harry tells Tom that he failed this time because nobody has died and the Mandrakes will be reviving everyone who had been petrified very soon, Tom tells him he doesn't care about Salazar Slytherin's plan to remove Muggleborns from the school any longer. He's now focused on Harry and how this child could have possibly defeated Lord Voldemort. Harry doesn't understand why Riddle cares until it's revealed that Tom is, in fact, Voldemort. Harry tells Riddle that Voldemort is basically nothing now, and that Voldemort would never be the greatest wizard ever because Dumbledore is way fucking better. As a reward for giving Dumby that high praise, Fox shows up with a sorting hat in case Harry wants to try it on for the third time. Anyway, Riddle finds this amusing 
and decides it's time to get out the giant snake. Insert Adam's expected joke here. Even when she's not here, she knows that there's gonna be some dick jokes. So Harry closes his eyes and runs away, which sounds really cowardly, but what the hell is he supposed to do without a weapon when there's an ancient giant snake who can kill you not only with his sharp poisonous teeth, but also its fucking eyes? But don't worry much, because Fox blinds the basilisk with his sharp beak, and now Harry just has to avoid being crushed by a giant snake writhing in pain. Because he has no idea what to do, he puts on the sorting hat, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, and is nearly knocked unconscious by a sword somehow hidden inside of it. He uses the sword to murder the basilisk. He again has to be grateful for Fox when the bird's healing tears save him from dying from the snake thing that is caught in his arm. Tom is pissed. Harry murdered his pet snake and didn't even fucking die from being poisoned by its fangs. He will just have to kill Harry himself, but wait! Fox and Harry play catch with the diary, and Harry stabs the diary with the basilisk thing, and hooray! Tom Riddle is gone again for now. It's the second to last chapter, so yeah, he's probably gone. Harry, Ginny, and Fox get the fuck out of that chamber and rush back to Ron and Lockhart. Then, because Fox is the fucking best, he manages to carry four humans out of the depths of the school and back to Myrtle's bathroom, where she mourns the fact that Harry did not die while in the chamber. Next stop, not the fucking bathroom, take a shower and clean off the blood. Nope, we're off to McGuh's office. That was really, really well done. I gotta say, it's still a pretty long chapter for Tara, but if Tara were here, she'd probably say that it was nothing compared to mine, and she's bright as usual, so let's get on with it. Okay, let's jump right in. So we open up this chapter where the last chapter ended. Lockhart and Ron being trapped behind the stone avalanche that Lockhart caused when he tried to obliviate Ron, and Harry has to go alone into the chamber. He opens up the chamber and goes in, and we still have that feeling that I talked about in the last episode of complete uncertainty and not really knowing what you're walking into. Very similar to the last book. Overall, I mean, when you think of the entire series, near the end of a lot of these books, he is walking into a new situation that is completely foreign and dangerous up until like even the very last book. That's a huge spoiler, so I'm not really going to go there. But what he is welcoming with open arms in his extreme bravery here. In the next chapter, we also get into a little of his struggle between is he a Slytherin? Is he a Gryffindor? Was the Sorting Hat wrong? all that good stuff. This is a moment to me where I'm like, it is so very clear that he really is a Gryffindor. The amount of balls that it takes for him to walk into this situation is pretty severe. He goes in, he is kind of observing everything. He sees the giant statue of Salazar Slytherin, and then he sees the body of Ginny at the foot of it. He goes up to check on her to make sure that she is not dead, and that's when Riddle approaches. He is trying to tell Riddle that they need to get out of there, that the basilisk is going to be coming for them. And Riddle is just like the cool, calm, collected kind of mirror of what Gildory Lockhart was kind of trying to be previously. It's funny because they are kind of the two quote-unquote villains of this book. I mean, Lockhart does not compare to Tom Riddle, obviously. But it's funny because 
Lockhart is this bumbling idiot. He does the same sort of thing, taking Ron's wand and he fucks it all up. It shows how much of a coward and vapid, prideful individual he is. Whereas here, Riddle is truly calm and collected. And this is someone who has a lot of experience being the villain, even at his age. Riddle is a fifth year, so that's like 16 years old. So it's hard to compare them on the same level, but there is kind of an interesting dynamic between those two and what we just saw Lockhart do previously. This is where Harry asks if he's a ghost and Riddle says that he is a memory preserved in a diary for 50 years. It's really interesting because that is him showing all of his cards of who he is and why he is there. Before Harry, all these years later from what he saw 50 years ago, during this whole thing and how how he describes the diary kind of sucking the life out of Ginny. It really got me thinking, and I think we may have talked about this before, but all the different ways that memories are captured during this entire series. A lot of times we see it in a pensive. Of course, at the very end of the series, again, a big spoiler, but Snape's tears. But this is something completely different and gives so much more personification to his memories. And of course, it's because this is the first horcrux of seven if this is your first time you know delving into the world of harry potter and you're like what the fuck is a horcrux well maybe you need to look in the mirror just kidding i don't necessarily think that we need to go into that yet we still have several books to talk about but the fact that the first one pops up so much earlier before we get into learning about anything else i mean there's three full books until we start learning about the next one and even what a horcrux is but the fact that that's here and it's setting the precedence for memories and everything it's so interesting up to this point we have talked a lot about the dynamic between the first book and the second book and the first book really being about introductions into this world and things that are magical this book has been setting a little bit more of the darker scenery the dynamic between pure blood and muggle-born wizards or muggles and wizards period and the corrupt government behind everything, and the relationship between magical humans and magical creatures like Dobby, for example. In the next book, we get a little bit more into Harry's backstory before we hop back into learning a little bit more about Voldemort, culture at school, more and more about the government, and it kind of like snowballs into the big culmination of the series. And we get such an early piece of that here. Not just with the Horcrux thing, but with the memories. So it, it really makes me think about the strategy of including this stuff this early, but also what are all the other elements out there in the Wizarding World that can be used in a similar way. Obviously, we know that this is different and is draining the life out of Ginny because it is not just a memory and a pensive. There is something a little bit dark behind that. But yeah, like I said, we'll talk about that in a few books. <laughs> So as Riddle continues to kind of explain himself, it's very much that quarrel moment from the last book where he is telling Harry everything. I don't really know why villains do this. <laughs> like, why, like, when they have their victim right where they want them, where they kind of reveal everything? It's kind of weird to me. It's a, it's a trope, but I mean, yes, it's storytelling. It's a nice buildup. <laughs> but... 
this is where he's really talking about what happens with Ginny and how he used Ginny to get all of these secrets, how he started talking to her about Harry. She is talking about how nobody believes her or trusts her. No one's ever understood me like you, Tom. I'm so glad I've got this diary to confide in. It's like having a friend I can carry around in my pocket. Obviously, she is feeling the crush that she has on Harry. That is how Tom Riddle is able to gain control of Ginny a little bit more. She starts to reveal things that happen when she is being possessed by Tom Riddle. I'm covered in feathers from strangling the roosters. There's another dick joke for you, Tara. Or I have paint all over me, which that's interesting because we, we called that... <laughs> that it's not written in blood like it was previously said it really is paint so i guess they did end up going to a michael's in hogsmeade because i mean do they have art class at hogwarts like where else are they getting it I, you don't often see a lot of things painted red at hogwarts like they're not you know doing a lot of renovations or anything so where, where's the red paint coming from maybe filch's summer project this past year was completely repainting the gryffindor common room i don't know but yeah, she is realizing, oh my gosh, there's all these like ties back to the crimes that have been committed and the petrifications. She is relaying this all back to Tom. You really feel for Ginny in this moment. We have seen those moments of her kind of curled up in the corner or like really like shocked more so than perhaps some of the other characters. I think of like when Mrs. Norris was petrified. It said something along the lines of she was a little bit more terrified of this because she was a cat lover, but also because maybe she's understanding that she had something to play in this. So Riddle goes on and on about all of that. He talks about how the diary finally fell into the hands of Harry Potter and how he was able to frame Hagrid and completely reveals that conversation that Tara and I had a few chapters ago, why Ginny was in such a frenzy. Clearly, there was that crush element. She didn't want all of her secrets to be revealed, but already, and even from the last chapter where she was about to reveal everything to Harry and Ron and then Percy came in and interrupted her. She's been kind of feeling a lot of guilt about this and realizing that, okay, I'm doing this. I'm, maybe I'm not realizing it. On top of it, she's still a little girl. She's a first year. We touch into it a little bit more in the next chapter, but her pure blood upbringing has her a little bit more in tune, perhaps, with magical things. Her father works for the Ministry in the Muggle Artifacts Office. I mean, all of these things that are playing into her psyche and really compound upon how horrible it is that Riddle took advantage of her in this way. One other thing that comes up in my notes for this portion is when he talks about framing Hagrid. Tara and I have talked a lot about how Hagrid is such a beloved character in this series. He's the first magical person that Harry gets to meet. Here he is in a completely different light from that kind of innocent Hagrid that we see at the very beginning of this series. It's been playing into it a lot up to this point with him being seen with the flesh-eating slug repellent in Nocturne Alley. Obviously, he's gotten cleared by Aragog, but he really is one of those characters that come up in your mind before that. When you're thinking, okay, is it really Hagrid? The way that he is acting strangely when he's taken by 
uh, Lucius Malfoy and Cornelius Fudge. Obviously, the way that Riddle framed him and shows that Hagrid was one of the people that was around 50 years ago, it carries a little bit more weight, perhaps, than some of the other people that we've talked about that you can also consider as maybe being that era of Slytherin, like Percy. <laughs> He's come up in our conversations, but how would he have released a monster 50 years ago? Did he do it through Arthur or Molly? I mean, clearly no, and they also weren't around 50 years ago. It was a Grandpa Weasley. And then the other one that we talked about, obviously, is Lockhart, which he probably wasn't around 50 years ago either. Uh, I think I talked about that in the last chapter. Lockhart doesn't know how to do math, neither does Ron. Uh, so there's all these red herrings in terms of characters, and I do think that Hagrid, up until Aragog, and perhaps even afterward, I mean, are you really going to trust a giant spider as one of those people that you think of? But I wonder, especially the last few chapters when Lockhart kept talking about how certain he was that it was Hagrid that was the heir of Slytherin. I wonder after all of this if there is some way for Hagrid to go like his GED and like come back and regain his status as a wizard, get his diploma, get his wand restored, things like that. After they realize, oh yeah, he actually was framed. He was expelled incorrectly. They got the wrong person 50 years ago. Is there any way to make a right out of this? What they end up doing is giving him a job. Because <laughs> next book, he is the Care of Magical Creatures professor. I almost wonder if like that's not good enough. <laughs> There's... 50 years in the making here of reversing a wrong. I mean, the evidence is right there at the end of the day. Dumbledore knows it. I think perhaps maybe it goes back to the whole corruption of the ministry. Cornelius Fudge trying to keep up appearances and they have to be seen doing something, that whole thing. You know, maybe there's too much red tape around kind of pardoning Hagrid and you know that there's a bunch of bitches like Lucius Malfoy up in the ministry that are like, fuck no. I don't know. I thought that might be a nice little subplot that could have gone in a different direction for Hagrid after this book. It would have been maybe really funny to see Hagrid in class with all of these kids. So anyway, back to Riddle. He is talking about Ginny, etc. He says how Ginny was continuing to give more information about Harry, about his ability to speak parcel tongue, and then that's why he made Ginny come down and wait in the chamber. Write that farewell on the wall. This is also where you continue to see Harry just get more and more furious. Riddle says, I have many questions for you, Harry Potter. And Harry's response in the book is just so fierce. Like what, Harry spat, fists still clenched. He's 13 years old? Holy cow. The, like, amount of courage that he has in this moment. Riddle asks why a young baby could defeat such a powerful wizard like Vol Lord Voldemort. And Harry's like, what the fuck? What is it is to you? And he's like, Voldemort is my past, present, and future. And that's where we see the great anagram work of Tom Marvolo Riddle becoming I am Lord Voldemort. Up till this point, I don't think that they mentioned Marvolo at all, being his middle name. We are always thinking of, like, first-time readers and what they are initially thinking. And I I wonder if somebody might have like deduced that if they had included that earlier like if Tom Riddle had written his middle name on this diary or whatever I love it because I think it was when Tara had shown me the deleted scenes from the movies they had French subtitles and because of the translation in French his middle name has to be Elvis or maybe it's his first name whatever Tom Riddle is Elvis in French. It's, I mean, it's pretty clever. Part of me is like, could it have been something different where the letters in Lord Voldemort are the only parts of the name? I mean, Tom is in there. 
I don't know. I don't got the time to try to figure out what his real name will be. I'm the only one recording this time. So, but anyways, that's where we realize that Tom Riddle is Voldemort before he came to power. He goes on in true Voldemort fashion about him being, you know, the most feared, the most powerful, whatever. And we get a great Harry Sass moment here on page 314 of my version. Harry says, you're not the greatest wizard. Sorry to disappoint you and all that. It's just exactly the way that, like, a preteen boy would say it. Like, you're not all that in a bag of potato chips. <laughs> it's just really, really amazing to me. He is fuming at this point. He is harnessing all of his bravery, and he still has the ability to be sassy. Harry, then, at this point, and this is a very important moment, harkens back to what Dumbledore said in Hagrid's hut before he was taken away, about he will never be truly gone as long as there are people there who are loyal to him. If someone needs help, all they have to do is ask, because this is where we move from the dialogue into the action. Riddle says, Dumbledore has been driven out of this castle by the mere memory of me. And Harry's response is he's not as gone as you might think. It appears to strike a chord with Riddle. And then that's when he hears this music and it is Fox singing as he is coming with the sorting hat. Of course, this is a sign of Harry's loyalty to Dumbledore. These are the tools that Dumbledore equips Harry with in order to defeat the Basilisk. We all know that Dumbledore knows so much more than is painted on the pages. Knowing that this is likely what is going to happen in the event that Harry is loyal to him, Fox is supposed to come in and bring the hat. But I've always kind of felt it kind of strange that these are the tools that were chosen. Fox definitely makes sense. All of the different things that Fox does in order to help Harry here, cool. Another creature that is basically doing Dumbledore's bidding. But the sorting hat always kind of made me scratch my head and like, why is the Sorting Hat making another appearance here. I actually really love how Tara touched on this in her summary though, because I do think the reason why it's brought is simply the internal struggle that he's been having this entire time. Tara said <laughs> that, oh, maybe he wants to put it on a third time, just, just to check, you know? In this moment, I don't know, I'm still kind of thinking that it might be me. I'm the heir of Slytherin. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Now, why the sort of Gryffindor comes out, that is kind of like, what the fuck? Why and how? Like, is this like Hermione's bag or Mary Poppins' purse or the expandable tents or the Fort Anglia, you know, that has the ability to hold an infinite amount of objects? Is this where Dumbledore likes to store all of his trinkets? <laughs> Because it's a symbol of Gryffindor, and throughout the series we hear only a true Gryffindor would be able to pull the sword out of the sorting hat. If they needed to access Helga Hufflepuff's cup, would they just need to go to Jay Finch and be like, hey, can you put this on your head? We need, need to get access to this Horcrux. And Jay Finch is like, sure, I don't know what a Horcrux is, but here you go. Could it have been that easy? What if they did the same thing with Luna and the diadem, you know? It's kind of one of those loopholes that I'm just really puzzled by. But I mean, hey, in this situation, it works out for Harry, while also, giving him kind of that gratification that, oh yes, I am a true Gryffindor, this is where I belong. I mean, I guess it is a good thing that he's not a Slytherin, because how would he have killed the Basilisk with a fucking locket, you know? 
It leaves so many questions open for the future, too. I talked about this earlier, about how this is our first Horcrux and everything. There's so many questions that this book leaves open. Like, at the end of the last book, we talked about how Philosopher's Stone, or Sorcerer's Stone, stands really well on its own. It could have been its own book, and perhaps the rest of this amazing series could never have been written. But this book leaves so many open questions about the diary, about why the sorting hat and the sword. I mean, one could also say, what else would have Dumbledore sent him? So after Harry receives the gifts from Dumbledore, there's a little bit more dialogue here about how Harry ended up defeating Voldemort. Of course, he goes into a little bit of information about how his mother protected him and created this kind of barrier of love around him, and that is essentially how that happened. There's also this moment where Harry almost gives a little bit of insight back to Riddle, similar to how Riddle is kind of pouring out all this information, like I mentioned earlier, how the villains always like to, you know, give everything away in the end. And Harry talks about how Voldemort is actually in this current time period when the story is happening. Voldemort is kind of like a shriveled up potato, like a husk of what he used to be. And these two bits of information, both about how Lily protected him and the current state of Voldemort, are kind of interesting to me. It makes me wonder if Riddle, or should I say Voldemort, in this form, can transmit the information through the diary back to Voldemort. Because this is valuable information, I think, for the rest of the series. And it's funny because then Voldemort's response is kind of to compare them. And this whole passage where he's talking about how they're both parcel mouths, they're both orphans, they both come from a half-blood background, it, it seems like Voldemort's actually envious of him. He even at one point says that they kind of look alike, and I'm like... <laughs> Harry ain't no shriveled up potato, honey. Not only in this passage can you tell that Voldemort really kind of wants to get in Harry's head, no pun intended, that's kind of a big spoiler, but you'll figure it out eventually. But the jealousy thing really kind of stood out to me. And the thing is, he's really right in that moment too. There are a lot of similarities between them, and it really goes to show that two people can start at the same exact spot and have the same sort of background. And depending on their choices that they make, they can end up in two completely different places. In this case, good versus evil, obviously. But I think that you can apply that to other things in life as well. But also, I think that this part is in here because choices are such a big theme throughout this book. Not only just the Slytherin versus Gryffindor thing that Harry is dealing with. I mean, I even try to think back to, you know, they made the choice to go to Nearly Headless Nick's death day party. They made some choices even recently about going straight to McGonagall when they had a, the additional evidence they got from Hermione. Choices is a big, big thing here. This comparison moment builds upon it I don't want to verge on the big quote that Dumbledore says in the next chapter, too, because that's going to be important at that point. But he says something that really sums all this up really, really nicely. So this comparison part, even though it's really, really weird, it balances out that Dumbledore moment. I mean, not for anything, like Stephen Ostertag said when he was recording with us, choices were made. So same sort of thing here. Riddle starts speaking Parseltongue. He summons the snake out of the mouth of the Slytherin statue, and the basilisk starts coming after Harry. And this is something kind of similar to what I said last episode, too. It's just the continuation of the horror that this book has, and everything that they've really been through in the last few chapters. 
uh, the Aragog incident and all of the spiders, Ginny disappearing into the chamber, the anxiety surrounding the school being closed, and now there's this giant snake that is coming mm-hmm. after Harry that, like Tara said, again, in her summary, it not only has venomous fangs, but it can also kill him instantly by just looking him in the eyes. I think she's right when she says that this is why no one likes this book. It is a lot of terrifying stuff. And it kind of goes from zero to 60 when you do compare it to the last book as well. Another similar thing here to the Aragog incident is that he can't see. I mean, back then, he had a very limited field of vision when they were going through the Forbidden Forest, and all of his other senses were kind of amplified. Uh, We talked a little bit about how the sound of, like, the Fort Anglia and fang barking or the feeling of something brushing against his legs stood out because he wasn't able to see it as much. Uh, And here, it's similar, except he can't see it all, because if he does open his eyes, he's going to die. So... It is horrible. We talked a little bit more in the Aragog chapter about how we have been like on hikes and stuff and it's been really dark and you try to get your way back. But in this instance, you know, yes, all those spiders could have killed them, certainly. (laughs) But in this instance, the threat level is so much higher and so much severe. You can really feel it in the way that it's written. And Harry just starts asking for help in every way possible. And just like what Dumbledore said earlier that we've already touched on, that is what really gets him through this, if you think about it. Fox springs into action. So now finally the tools that Dumbledore sent him are being utilized in his request for help. So Fox then comes after the Basilisk and pecks out both of his eyes. The way this is written too, it talks about a dark red like shower of blood coming down upon him. And I mean, the horror imagery just continues and continues. You almost wonder like, okay, where did that blood come from? Did it come from Fox or did it come from the Basilisk? Luckily it was the Basilisk, but now this snake is going wild thrashing from pain, thrashing from going after Fox. This is where Riddle yells at him in English, mind you, not in Parcelmouth. So obviously the Basilisk isn't going to listen to him, right? Harry can't help but look up and see that this is what's happening. But still, how the hell do you get out of this situation? Even though the Basilisk can't understand Riddle, Riddle makes a good point that now he can smell Potter. So this is where, I mean, he doesn't know what to do, so he puts the hat on his head. Clearly, Fox is there to protect him, but what can the hat do? It maybe even goes back a little bit to what I said earlier about choices and how the sorting hat really is a symbol of that. Kind of like, what choices do I have? Puts the hat on his head, and then this poor kid has not been through fucking enough. He almost gets knocked out by the sword of Gryffindor falling out of the hat. Luckily, he comes to and now has a weapon to defend himself. He times his attacks correctly, and eventually he gets a nice thrust up into the roof of the basilisk's mouth and kills the basilisk. Now, of course, when this happens, the basilisk thing goes right through his arm because it can't be simple like that, can it? While the basilisk is dead, Riddle comes over to him and as he's dying is kind of, you know, pouring some salt in the wound, saying how he's going to sit there and watch him die which is what he wanted all along. And then Fox comes over and also pours some salt in the wound, assuming that Phoenix tears are also salty, of course. 
Riddle does this stupid moment here where he's not even thinking about it. You know, he claims to be the greatest wizard ever, but he can't remember that a phoenix's tears have healing powers. It's actually kind of funny. Once the wound kind of heals up and disappears, Riddle's like, oh yeah, like a facepalm. Of course, I forgot they have healing properties. But then, yet again, it's not that simple because Ginny is still in danger and the diary is still leeching all the energy and life out of her. Soon Riddle will be back to being a full human, no longer a memory, and he's like, I'll just kill you then. It almost feels like Harry has almost run out of options here now. He's used up the tools, he's gotten what he needed from the sorting hat. Fox helped him by poking out the eyes of the basilisk, by healing his wounds. Now what? And it's like grasping at straws again. Very similar to like, okay, well, I might as well put the hat on. What else am I supposed to do? He grabs the fang that was in his arm and makes the brilliant move to stab the diary. It's such a random moment. And truly, I think that's what it is. It's a reaction. He's got to do something. He's got to use what's at his disposal. And luckily, that is what destroys the diary, and Riddle kind of disintegrates away, and Ginny comes back to life. A couple more things here before we resolve the end of the chapter. One, I touched on this a little bit already about how there is so much in this book that seems almost premature, like the horcruxes and all of that sort of dark magic that we don't hear about for a couple more books and the sword and the basilisk fang are part of that as well it's kind of lucky when you think about it that the two things there that have the power to destroy the diary are in his grasp at that moment the basilisk fang and the sword makes me wonder what else out there has the ability to destroy that sort type of dark magic is it just a coincidence, or is there more that we don't kind of see? The other thing is the way that this whole part is written is in such a frenzied pace, and you really can almost feel the adrenaline pumping through Harry's body because it's such a roller coaster. Harry's courage is building and building and building. He's becoming angrier and angrier, and all of a sudden, then Fox comes in with the hat, and Riddle summons the basilisk, and it's this moment of danger where he could get petrified oh but there's some hope because fox pecks out the eyes and then wait a minute what if i get crushed by the basilisk and then the sword of gryffindor is there but he has to use it then to kill the basilisk and then the thing goes into his arm and then after fox heals him then there's still the potential of Ginny dying it's this constant up and down there's something that happens that is good and then something that happens that is bad and it's almost like a metaphor for this constant struggle of the entire series of voldemort and the dark side and then harry and dumbledore and everybody on the good side just kind of squished into this one chapter it makes this entire battle that is kind of going back and forth feels so quick, yet you know that it also feels so long for Harry. And it's great writing. 
So after that happens, Ginny comes to and she immediately kind of like collapses and all these emotions kind of run back and she's immediately thinking about like what is going to happen based on everything that we do here. It's such an authentic moment, I think, for Ginny. It's exactly what a young girl would do who has been through this terrible ordeal, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be expelled. What's going to happen to mom and dad? What's going to happen to maybe dad's job? All of this. They leave the Chamber of Secrets and reunite with Ron and announce that they're both alive. I have to think that Ron was like, oh my god, what the fuck just happened? Like, against all odds, everything is okay, they're both okay. With everything that just happened, the sequence of events falling right into place exactly how they should, it is kind of a miracle. And then lastly, this is where we find out that Lockhart has obliviated himself. Fox takes all of them back up through the Chamber of Secrets into Myrtle's bathroom. And Myrtle was disappointed that they didn't die because, of course, she got the hots for Harry. And that's essentially the chapter. One thing that I did notice, though, on the version of my book, it is the original art of Fox and Harry is holding on to the tail of Fox. Ron and Ginny are there too. And I'm like, this this fucking cover spoiled the entire resolution of the conflict of this book. One other thing of this moment too is Harry puts the sword like in his belt loop and then or Ron holds on to Harry. And I'm like, well, good thing Ron didn't get impaled too. Because the last thing that they need after all of this shit and everything that Ron's been through with the spiders and his sister is then for Ron to have an issue as well. But then again, I guess Fox could just be like, okay, hold up, we need to take a minute here, and I gotta heal this bitch before we go back up out. And after all, I don't really think that Myrtle would be very happy if it was Ron that was trapped in her bathroom all the time. She only wants that hairy dick, so... Truly, I think that this is done so, so well in the movie. I really don't have a ton of issues with the comparison. Some of the dialogue between Harry and Tom Riddle are so authentic to the book. Um, it's done very, very, very well. A couple things that I noted, the description kind of of the Chamber of Secrets, when he has to go into the chamber where there's the statue of Slytherin, it's a little bit different. The door is kind of positioned a little differently. I mean, I love how it looks in the movie with all the snakes coming out and the snake kind of circling the door when it opens. And in the book, it's a life-size statue. I think it works so much better the way they did it, uh, with it being kind of like a whole wall that just is Slytherin's face. And I also think it's a little bit more terrifying the way they did it, which I mean, hey, if you're going to do a movie about a book that has a lot of terrifying shit in it, I guess that's the way to do it. But I did like those aesthetic changes and differences. I mean, that's one of the great things about the movie is that you have a little bit more a license for creativity to really interpret the way that it's going to look. There's a little bit more of a chase between the Basilisk and Harry. They go throughout kind of like all of the pipe corridors and everything. 
And there's some really terrifying moments, like when the basilisk is blinded and he like comes right up to Harry. They have that like face-to-face moment. It reminds me of like the spider moment in the Aragog chapter where a spider comes through the window of the car and like latches onto Ron. Harry luckily throws a rock to distract the basilisk and get back to Ginny. It's funny to me that they added that little piece because they did cut out so many things and some things that I think are kind of crucial to the story, like all the Hufflepuff moments. But I guess it's one of those things that they can add in to give a little bit more of like a twinge of excitement and suspense to the viewers, I suppose. Clearly they made some decisions because A, it's a movie and there are some things that aren't going to translate. B, because it's length. And I also think of audience. The audience is kids. So at the same time, I'm kind of like, okay, why did you decide to include that? Well, whatever. It is what it is. It added a nice little bit of suspense. And the only other really big thing that I noted that I already touched on in the last chapter, it shows that Lockhart obliviated himself in the last chapter, in the movie. Here at the very end is when we see that Lockhart has lost all of his memories and everything. All in all, because there was so much cut from this book and each individual chapter, there are a lot of chapters that get a passing grade from Tara and I. But for me, I kind of think of this one is maybe the most well-represented as a whole. I mean, there are things that are, like, straight out of the book. So, pretty short movie comparison this time. Okay, so here are my points for this chapter. Um, This one's going to be pretty easy because there weren't a lot of characters, but I kind of cover almost all of them that are in here. And this was, of course, the big culmination of the entire book so this is gonna involve some pretty heavy point exchanges Uh, plus 100 to harry (laughs) this is a terrifying chapter yes aragog was terrifying too and it was a life or death moment but this part was so much more dire you know if harry had died down there if Voldemort had come back to power, if Ginny had died, the Basilisk could have been still been free and wreaked complete havoc in the school. Ron and Lockhart were still trapped. There were so many things kind of riding on this. Harry really just like glared death in the face like he does so many other times in this series with complete conviction and bravery and sass and it is great. So 100 to Harry. I don't know if I've given that many points ever at once. I know I've given 50, but 100 to Harry. Speaking of 50, 50 to Fox. I mean, I talked a lot in this episode how some of these elements are so unbelievable and kind of come out of the blue, and it's very unexpected. Fox is one I guess I can kind of get behind. If Fox can sense that Harry is loyal to Dumbledore, pretty amazing, but... I also get this effortless feeling from Fox during this whole thing. Like, Fox knows exactly what to do. He knows to go after those eyes. He knows to bring the sorting hat. He knows to immediately come to Harry's rescue when he has the basilisk venom in him. It's really cool. This is a smart-ass bird. (laughs) Um, And Harry could not have done it without Fox. So, plus 50 to Fox. Plus 20 to Ginny. This is also such a traumatic thing for Ginny. She's not just thinking about herself. I can only imagine, like, how shaken she is after this happens. This is her first year at Hogwarts. Like, Harry and Hermione and Ron had a pretty eventful first year in their first year of Hogwarts. But... 
Man, not like this. Ginny was completely alone, and she was taken completely advantage and possessed by Tom Riddle. And So 20 to Ginny. She deserves some recognition here. Uh, negative 100 to the Basilisk. I mean, part of me was like, Basilisk is kind of like Aragog. Like, it's a creature. It's just doing its own thing. But I don't know. I was like, that Basilisk is a dick. Even though he's going based on Riddle's orders, like, he tried to kill Harry. He tried to kill all these other students. The only one that he succeeded in killing was Myrtle. I don't like it. Why are you putting a snake in your basement? And then, of course, negative 200 to Riddle slash Voldemort. And I don't think I've taken away this many points either. This is the teenage memory version of. He already was putting so many students at risk. The whole thing here where he reveals that he framed Hagrid. Voldemort does some pretty fucking terrible things in the future. I mean, it starts here. So negative 200 to Voldemort slash Riddle. And that's everything. So plus 100 Harry, plus 50 Fox, plus 20 Ginny, negative 100 Basilisk, and negative 200 Riddle slash Voldemort. And let me tell you something. Right now, I have been talking for about 45 minutes, and that does not include Tara's portion with Winner and Loser and the summary. And I'm fucking tired. Doing these episodes by themselves sucks, so I cannot wait to have Tara back. I'm sure all of you are too. You don't have to hear me ramble on and on and on, and I don't have to continually pause this recording and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? So, amen to that. Next time, Tara and I will be discussing the final chapter of the Chamber of Secrets, chapter 18, Dobby's Reward. Is he finally going to get that kiss from Harry Potter that he's been waiting for this entire series? Tune in and find out. Bye. Basic Snitches is produced and recorded by Adam Bowers and Tara Corkery. Edited by Adam Bowers. And published by Tara Corkery via Podbean. And now available for download wherever you listen to podcasts. A special thanks to all of you for taking the time to download and listen to us. We hope you enjoyed us. If you enjoyed us, please be sure to rate us five stars on your listening app of choice. And if you didn't enjoy us, then we're sorry you're so angry. Please also connect with us. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Basic Snitches or email us at basicsnitches at gmail.com. We're excited to get more feedback from our listeners and to hear what you have to say about the questions and discussions we have on the podcast. Catch, Catch you later, later, snitches! snitches.